This is a Federal News Network podcast. For long-serving federal executives, retirement from government is merely a gateway to the next phase. A case in point is Letitia Long, who retired back in 2014 as director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She sits on several corporate boards and chairs one of the big trade groups. For some insight into post-government life and a few other matters, Tish joins me now. Ms. Long, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Tom, and good morning to you. How are you today? All right. And a lot of feds at your level, you know, have to contemplate what will be next, because I've known very few in 30 years of covering this of people that just absolutely retire and go fishing. And a lot of incoming comes your way, and there are ethical ways of dealing with it. But more importantly, how do you decide what should come next? So, Tom, that's a great question, because as you say, there can be a lot of incoming. Let me just share with you what I did and a couple of things that I think apply to everyone. First of all, take a break. Take some time off. If you've been at the senior executive level, you've probably been working at full speed for a long time. So take a break. You've earned it. You deserve it. Second, talk to as many people as you can. You know, learn what they did may not be directly for you, but you're going to get tidbits, you know, from everyone. And then, you know, there's a a couple of, I would say, major decisions you need to make. And that is where are you going to live? You know, are you going to stay in the Washington, D.C. area? Are you going elsewhere? Do you want to go work for a company full time? Do you want to hang your own shingle and, you know, develop a consulting business? Or in my case, do you want to put a portfolio together? which is what I ended up doing. And I was very fortunate that I had a lot of incoming, as you say, a lot of opportunities. And so I fashioned a portfolio that was one-third boards, one-third teaching and public speaking, and one-third pro bono. And those one-third, one-third, one-third did not equal 100% of my time because I absolutely wanted to leave time for family who had been neglected, and friends. And the good thing about boards is that they are not full-time employment, but in most cases, they do pay something, right? In most cases, they do. And again, there's a mix there. A public company board is typically a mix of cash compensation and equity, stock. Private company boards can be the same, although they are often equity. And so you're betting on the future of the company. And then there are, of course, nonprofit boards that usually don't compensate you at all in a cash or equity way. They certainly compensate you from a, a reward perspective. In a reputational manner, perhaps. That as well. You mentioned the trade association. I'm chairwoman of the board of INSA, the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and the organization had a great reputation, you know, when I took over the board and it, it continues to. And it's enabled me to build, continue to build my network. And you were not merely a senior executive, but one at a very high visible level in the intelligence community, not Senate confirmed necessarily, but interacting on a daily basis at that level. And so you have to be careful, I guess, that what you choose, which boards you serve to be on, for example, have a themselves a reputation that can enhance your own standing and not diminish it. Fair way to put the consideration? Absolutely, Tom. And, you know, you use that reputation word. And when we retire, 
from federal service. What we have at the end of the day is our integrity and our reputation. Certainly we're skilled. And um, as you mentioned, the interaction with Congress, you know, running a large organization, multi-billion dollar global operations. The way I approached thinking about boards was, could I get behind the mission of the company? Was it something I could relate to? Did I respect the CEO and the management team? And did I respect and want to be a part of the board of directors? Were these people I wanted to be associated with and would want my name associated with? And then did I think I could contribute? And was I going to continue to learn and develop? And I will tell you that's still the way I approach each board opportunity. I'm still, again, very fortunate getting new opportunities. Wow. We're speaking with Letitia Long, former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, long-serving IC person, and now chair of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. And I want to ask you about one aspect of your career at NGA and how that has played out since in your view, and that is the inculcation of open source materials, data, into the IC. That was revolutionary at the time but it also recognized what was going on in the geospatial market with new satellites, new startups, all kinds of new geospatial tools. How would you evaluate the outcome at this point, eight, nine, ten, almost a decade later? So let's take a very real-world example, Ukraine. The satellite imagery that you are seeing nearly every day you know, comes from multiple commercial companies that yes, sell their imagery to the government and there's a huge commercial market. It has been crucial in this war between Russia and Ukraine from multiple perspectives, from a diplomatic perspective. This administration used it to really show the world what was going on. The Ukrainians have used it to actually plan and conduct their operations. So that is just one very real example of a huge commercial market that is impacting really all aspects of our life. I mean, I give a military and diplomatic example. There are many examples, you know, from all of the ways you use your smartphone to navigate to just finding information. You know, you mentioned geospatial, but there's just a wealth of information out there in the open source arena. And in many ways, that puts more pressure on an agency to really develop its people, because if they are using sources of data in their work, and again, in this case, geospatial, that is available to anyone else on Earth, then you have to be able to be better at using those tools than anyone else. So it becomes, I would think, a human capital training kind of orientation issue more than a technical issue. You know, it's a little of both, Tom, because first of all, Is that information real or has it been manipulated? What is the source of the information? Can it be verified independently? So there are still technical aspects, absolutely. And yes, it is the human capital aspects in are the individuals comfortable looking at a full array of sources, commercial, open source, as well as the government information and then integrating it all together, you know, using a wide variety of tools. And one more career-related question. You've stated in another recent interview that 
It was your civilian status in moving to the NGA, which is a combat support organization that was more significant in some sense than your being the first woman director. Both, actually. When I was coming up through the ranks, I never really aspired to be the director of an agency. There had never been a woman before, and there had never been a civilian. Now, there were a couple who were civilians at the time of being director, but they had storied military careers. They were known as lieutenant general or vice admiral, you know, retired, and then went on to lead agencies. I was the first true civilian with no military service. There have been more since I was director, and that's really gratifying to see that, you know, hopefully another glass ceiling shattered. Sure. And again, looking back on a long time in the federal government, Congress talks about the federal workforce. It doesn't actually make much in the way of fundamental change in the statutory basis for federal employment. What could they do, do you think, to improve Title V, replace it, or otherwise just enhance the idea of being a federal career person? One of the things they could do is adopt some of the flexibilities that are in Title X and in some of the other titles that enable direct hiring, for instance. So those in the intelligence community fall under Title X, and they have the ability to do direct hires, still taking into account you know, all of the aspects of competition, diversity, and equity, but a little more flexibility that enables you to hire very quickly. You know, the current hiring process, forget about the security clearance process, but the current hiring process can take months and months and months. And when you're in a crisis mode, you need to bring that talent on very quickly. The other thing that Title X gives the flexibility for is pay bans. So not just the set grade and step that Title V locks you into, but giving you the ability to compensate people for their experience, their education, and their market worth. Those two things alone would make a huge difference. Yeah, so five toward 10, that's a little bit different than, say, the approach at Veterans Affairs where Title 38, they want to make more like Title V in some aspects, as opposed to making Title V more like Title 38. And there are probably nuggets in each of those titles. So maybe a task force to pull out all the best of each and then develop something new. And by the way, what's it like, if you can recall, the first day after you leave a high-security, high-clearance job where you have access to just about all of the secret, classified national security information flowing, and the next morning you pick up the phone and it's just a dial tone? So that's a great question. And, you know, when I woke up the first day, you know, it was kind of with a start, oh, my gosh, I'm late. And then it was, oh, I I don't have to be anywhere. And then it was, well, I don't have my morning intelligence briefing. How am I going to know what's really going on in the world? And, you know, you referenced and we talked about a few minutes ago that open source information. There's a lot of really good information out there. It might be 12 or 24 hours late, but most of the current events actually make their way into the public view which I think is good and very important. It may be a time lag. And then you may not always know the exact source or technical collection, 
which I don't think the general public needs to know, keep that secret, but educate the people on, on what's going on around the world. And I very rapidly, I was okay. Didn't miss the 3 a.m. phone calls or the 4 a.m. roll out of bed. I do miss the people in the mission. But given what you have actually done in your post-career, I guess the best way to put it is maybe the girl left the mission, but the mission didn't leave the girl. It's a good way to put it, Tom. Letitia Long is former director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. She is currently chair of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. It was a pleasure. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints, uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. 
Um, and 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 in in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know. And but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming, and uh, and and you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Everyone yeah. is equal at Special Olympics it, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to, uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest 
people that you will meet and and uh and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is is how you'll learn it. Check us out uh you know uh, specialolympics.org on on our website uh that will link you to your local program you can follow through the the clicks of how to get involved and where what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.